Good morning. And grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, one of our favorite places to go on Thanksgiving weekend, uh, back when we lived in Boston, was a place called Plymouth Plantation. Um, Plymouth Plantation is a living history museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where the pilgrims landed. And it's a replica of an English farming village dating back to 1627, seven years after the arrival of the Mayflower. Um, It's set on the historic lands of the native Wampanoag peoples who have a historic village there. Um, But the English village is populated with all kinds of uh, casts of characters, actors who are in period costume, who relate to you what life was like in early New England as they cook or chop wood or look after the animals or just walk the village. Uh, One of my favorite stops in the village is the meeting house where church services were held. And uh, while we were there, we would meet a deacon of the church who told us what worship was like for the pilgrims way back when, and then he led us in singing a psalm together. Um, After most of the crowd dispersed, the deacon went on to talk about the Bible, and he showed us the Bible that the pilgrims would have read back in 1627, a Bible known as the Geneva Bible. Um, As you know, the pilgrims came to the New World seeking religious and political freedom, and they were deeply influenced by the work of John Calvin, a great Protestant reformer that came after Martin Luther. And Calvin and his followers lived in Geneva, Switzerland, which became the testing ground for their brand of Protestantism. Um, And in 1560, with the help of some English Protestants, they produced a new translation of the Bible in English called the Geneva Bible. And here's a picture of it. And this came 26 years after Martin Luther had translated the Bible into German. It was the first mass-produced Bible to have cross-references, introductions, maps, tables, illustrations, and indexes, and it had extensive commentary that you can see down the inside and outside margins of the page. Some people have referred to the Geneva Bible as the very first study Bible. Um, And all of those additional materials conveyed John Calvin's point of view. Um, And today, Calvinism is expressed in Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches. Um, But in Calvin's time, one of his core ideas was a deep mistrust for monarchy, for kings and queens, which, of course, the pilgrims would have shared. Um, The Geneva Bible was so popular, and its ideas were seen as such a threat to the English monarchy, that King James of England ordered the creation of a new translation of the Bible, the now-famous King James Version. Um, And the deacon at Plymouth Plantation told us that the King James Version removed all the commentary and margin notes from the Geneva Bible, including those critical of the monarchy. Uh, And he told us that all the instances of the word tyranny or tyrannical, words that might be used to describe an unpopular king like King James, were all changed and removed from the King James Version. Um, And so the much-loved King James Version was not just a great religious work, it was a very savvy political work as well for King James. Uh, And today, where almost anybody knows the King James Version of the Bible, hardly anybody remembers the Geneva Bible at all. And I think of this little lesson from the deacon at Plymouth Plantation on this Christ the King Sunday, um, because our experience with monarchy is rather symbolic and quaint. Uh, You know, it pretty much amounts to like the royal wedding, or seeing Queen Elizabeth in her carriage giving her little wave, or maybe it's drawn from the history books, or 
works of fiction. We're hardly connected to or affected by the monarchy at all. But for the pilgrims, the issue of kinship, kingship, and the power and honor and hubris that came with it was near the very heart of their religious convictions. They left England because of it, because they believed that the kingship and authority of religion and the church and the world was reserved for Christ alone. And they were not unique in the history of Christianity. From the very beginning, for thousands of years, the people of God have always had to contend with kings and queens, monarchs and emperors, pharaohs and powerful rulers, and all manner of empire, and to determine where their allegiances lie and how they are to live them out. Um, In the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, ancient Israel was a tiny nation surrounded by several great empires, the Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks. And all of these huge empires at one time or another invaded, ransacked, exiled, or enslaved the Hebrew people. Um, And in response, in our first reading, the prophet Daniel gives Israel a vision of a time when God will put all of those empires in their place. He describes how the ancient one, God, ascends to the judgment throne with a countless multitude around him. The court convenes, the book is open, and judgment is passed on those empires. And they are variously put to death, dethroned, destroyed, burned, showing that power and dominion ultimately belong to God. God in this story vindicates the people of Israel. And as weird as this reading sounds and the one from Revelation like it, this would have been a great source of comfort for Daniel's readers. Um, As one commentator writes, faced with the possibility of being subsumed or or even annihilated by the powers that be, the image of God on the throne, the ancient one, is a compelling way to convey the unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God, that God is firmly on the throne even if the terrible monsters are found for a season or a time. Um, And the same can go in our second reading for the book of Revelation. If you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation, it's a crazy book to read with all this imagery and rhetoric. Um, And it was written at a time by St. John of Patmos, at a time when before the Roman Empire had adopted Christianity as the official religion, that it was persecuting the early Christians. So this was written at a time of persecution for Christians. And John's wild imagery of this God seated on a throne, holding judgment over all the earth, would have been a source of reassurance and comfort for God's people, that God would and God did reign over all. Um, In his life, Jesus and his disciples were part of this story. They lived in Israel under the Roman Empire. And in our gospel reading for today, we see Jesus going toe-to-toe with Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor at the time. And so Jesus is accused of crimes against the empire because of his teachings, and now he's on trial for his life. And Pilate asked Jesus straight up, are you the king of the Jews? And at first, Jesus skirts the question and says, my kingdom is not of this world. But then Pilate comes again and says, are you a king? And Jesus says, you say so. And here there is no throne room, no clouds, no multitudes. There is just Jesus and Pilate. And you know how the story goes. (laughs) Even though Jesus wins this rhetorical duel with Pilate, Pilate sentences him to crucifixion and death, but then ironically orders that a sign be placed above Jesus on the cross saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, not just in Hebrew, but in Latin and Greek, the languages of the great empires of the day. Here the sign said, on this cross is indeed the king of the world. 
And here Jesus prevails once again, overcoming the empire, but not in the same way as Daniel or in the book of Revelation, but in a completely new way, by giving up his power and control, by submitting himself to the powers that be. And in doing so, he exposes them for what they are, and by his rising from the dead, he defeats them forever. And so while empires and nations rise and fall, the kingdom of God remains, a kingdom with no army and no emperor, a kingdom where truth and love are the currency and the cross stands at the center. Today in 2018, we are not preoccupied with kings and queens and monarchs like the pilgrims or empires and emperors like Daniel and John, but we are so consumed with politics. And Christ the King reminds us that all of our politics, as important as they may be, all of our politics is provisional. It reminds us that whenever worldly rulers regard themselves as all-powerful or when we fall into thinking that they are, especially after another bruising election cycle, Christ the King helps to remind us of who is in charge of our congregation, the church, the nation, and the world, and it's not a prime minister or a president or a parliament or a congress or the media or a party or a super PAC. God is in charge, and Christ is king, and that's good news. And Jesus is a different kind of king and reigns over a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. Jesus came to heal and restore and to gather In the words he spoke, in the life that he led, Jesus demonstrated a different kind of authority, a different kind of power, the power of love, and an authority not conferred on him by virtue of his title as the Son of God, but gained through the life he led and the life that he gave away for us. One commentator captures our present-day anxieties well when she writes, Sometimes when we switch on the morning news and read the newspapers over a cup of coffee, We may feel a bit like Daniel, frightened by devouring monsters in his night visions, when we seek to wrap our minds around everything that's happening in our country and around the world. However, she says, the belief and hope in a Savior that enters exactly where the forces of chaos seem to be the most rampant is what allows one to get up and face the day. For in the midst of our anxiety and our questions, Christ the King reminds us that all of this is nothing new that empires and nations rise and fall. It reminds us of the good news that God, through it all and above it all, remains in control. And that not only will God have the final say at the end of the age, but God's already had God's say on the cross, where Jesus laid down his life for us, giving birth to a kingdom that transcends time and place. It's the kingdom of God, a kingdom grounded in love and truth. And so we take heart in the image of Christ the King this morning, who was born in the shadow of empire, who was threatened and eventually persecuted and killed by the empire, but who has risen from the dead, reigning on high. It is this Advent hope in the already and not yet of our salvation that gives us the strength to endure. For though we are citizens of the world for a time, we are citizens of God's kingdom forever. Amen.